We almost got there. The Lord be with you. It is good to be with you. I'm looking up at the lights. The lights are just an uh, interesting illumination today. It's, it's great. We'll make it work. Um, I'm so excited to be with you again this morning as we are going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke. But as we talked about, if you remember last week, uh, this very front picture here comes to us from an Ethiopian manuscript. And this is one of the earliest images of the Gospel of Luke with the evangelist Luke. Um, but if you were here last week, you might say, did he even bother to change the slide? Because I thought, like kind of looks like me anyways, right? <laughs> you might be thinking, wait a second, this is, isn't it the same one? And it's not quite. They're very similar. But you can see there, they are different pictures. And they are very similar, and we'll look at the rest of the, the pictures at our, our last final week uh, from this, the Abba Garima 3 manuscript. Um, but you'll notice that they're similar because the, the illustrators here said, well, Matthew and Luke are similar. So we're going to color them, and we're going to draw them in similar ways. Not exactly the same, right? Their beards uh, are slightly different. Matthew's a little older. I hope I look a little more like Luke. Um, that's, that's one of the other pastors on staff, perhaps, maybe with a little more hair. I don't know. Okay, so um, here we are in the Gospel of Luke. Before we jump in and, and look at our outline, though, uh, let us pray together. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and the opportunity again to open your word, to consider consider all that your son Jesus did on earth and that is still doing here in our midst. We thank you, God, for the promise that we were reminded of last week that you are with us in Jesus Christ through your Holy Spirit. You are here because two or three are gathered in your name. And so we do gather in your name. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for all that we can learn today and, and may it be applied to our lives so that we may take another step on this walk of discipleship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, do you have some announcements. Oh, yes, yes. Is the, is the other news, uh, the other prayer news public regarding the accident? Uh, Zev, from what I understand, Zev Rosenberg was also in a car, uh, hit by a car this week. Um, I believe he was walking as a passenger and was hit by a car. So he's, he has a few broken bones. Uh, and so we keep him in our prayers as well. 
On to the Gospel of Luke. So our outline of today's class, we will again revisit the topic of compositional history, as well as talk about big and little omissions, which you'll uh, figure out what that means in a moment. We will again move on to reading Luke vertically. So again, our first week we talked about how there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke can be read together because they have the same eye. They're so similar. And you can read across all four of the Gospels, that is, reading horizontally. But if you just want to consider one Gospel, which we'll do today, it is said that you are reading vertically. Then we will look at an outline of Luke Acts, recalling, of course, that the author of Luke also wrote the account of the Acts of the Apostles. So there are similarities there. Then we'll consider uh, some important motifs throughout the whole of the book. So that's kind of where we are headed. Next, we consider uh, just another broad consideration is authorship and audience. And we saw this chart last week as we were considering Matthew. But this week, uh, we're talking about the gospel according to Luke, who is an author, uh, and this author is Gentile likely not from Palestine, and he's writing to Gentiles. So if, if, if we are a Jew writing to a Jew, Jewish audience, we're going to use different language. We're going to speak in different ways. Just as, as I said at the beginning of the class in September, um, if, you, if we share certain knowledge, I'm going to speak to you in different ways than I would an outsider, right? So if I know you're from Canton, I'll say, oh, I live by Glen Oak High School, right? Because that makes sense to you. You know about where that is. But if you've never been to Canton and you have no idea, uh, you know, if you kind of know Ohio, be like, oh, you know, the Football Hall of Fame. And, no, I'm not sure where the, okay, south of Cleveland and try to orient you. And if you've never been to the United States, you're like, okay, between Chicago and New York, right? So there's levels of familiarity and there's different ways to speak, to communicate the same information. It's going to be communicated in different ways. Um, also regarding the dating of the Gospels here, uh, it, Matthew and Luke, as we've, we'll discuss it again in a moment, it's hard to figure out how they're related. Um, it's probably around 85, uh, give or take 5 to 10 years. So Matthew and Luke are written about the same time um, and we'll come to John next week. We've seen this chart now. This is our third time looking at this chart, so I won't, I won't uh, pull it apart for you, except to say that the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are all related. There is tradition, and it's, it's word. Some of it is word for word, and not just the quotes, but the narration around it. Some of it is word for word. And so we know that they used each other in uh, certain ways, we talked about a few weeks ago that um, most everybody believes today that Mark was re uh, written first, called Mark and Priority, and that both Matthew and Luke drew on Mark. But the question becomes, oops, the question becomes of how are they related to each other? Is there an independence? Do they draw from a different source called Q, which we don't actually have? Uh, this is a hypothetical document that scholars have said, maybe this exists out there. Or... Is there an interdependence? Did Mark come first, Matthew written later, and then Luke said, you know what, I know both of these guys and both of these texts, and I want to write one better. So uh, I want you to open up your Bibles there to the very first chapter of Luke. Luke 
chapter 1. And I want to talk right from the start. We don't get this really in Matthew and, and Mark. Right from the start in Luke, we have this um, kind of a preface. He doesn't say who he is, right? We, we would love for that to be the case. But he doesn't actually say, here am I, this is who I am. Instead, he kind of gives a reason, a justification for what he's doing. So you can read there in your Bibles or, or look up here if you can see this. Uh, and this reads, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. This is where my son gets his name, by the way. So that you may know the truth concerning the thing about which you have been instructed. Okay, so what can we glean from this introduction? This is the time for audience participation. What can we glean? What, can we, what do we take away from this? Especially considering these charts before us, two-source hypothesis, the fair hypothesis, what is Luke saying that he is doing here? Yes. Okay, so there's the tradition that Luke is a physician, and so he's a smart, smart guy, a smart something, we may say. Um. <laughs> Roger? Okay, writings. I just want to capitalize on something you said. So it's not just one. He's not saying... After reading that, that Gospel of Mark, which I thought was good, but not as good as I could do, I want to do you one better. He's not saying that. He's saying since many people have undertaken. Now, many could be certainly more than one. I don't know how many more than one, right? Um, I probably think two, or maybe there's some other traditions he's really drawing on. We, we just don't know. We had there's absence of evidence. We don't have all the manuscripts, all the traditions from 2,000 years ago. Yep, Beth? Okay, great. He's trying to do this in a different way. Uh, and so he's investigating everything, and he's trying to do it in an orderly account. Now, I want to come on to Theophilus, just because it is my son's name here. Hold on one second. I'll finish this thought, and I'll come back to you guys. Um, Theophilus is just a term for friend or lover of God, right? So we're not sure if this is a real person or if this is just a general term, because you and I are Theophiloi, right? We are lovers and friends of God. So this could just be a general term. Anybody who loves God, look what I've done. This is really important. I uh, think Fred first. Writing a synthesis. Right, writing a synthesis. And that goes really well with this, this model. Actually, this model too, a synthesis. Taking everything I've gotten and pulling it together. And I think, Jane, you had something else? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Yep. After investigating everything carefully from the very first. So that seems that, that there, there's been distance in time. I've been on this case a long time. And now, after investigating this for a long time, I'm going to put out the whole report. Okay. Uh, okay. So 
in the outline, which we'll come to in a moment, Luke, um, Luke really draws heavily upon the chronological framework of Mark, but he omits some. Did I see a hand over here a moment ago? That's the name of the, that's the, name of the person who popularized the hypothesis. Yeah. Um, it's not Arthur. What is his first name? I can't remember his first name, but that's, that's the, the surname of the gentleman who back about 1950s popularized, started popularizing this theory. Yeah, good question. Okay. So there are, so he, he kind of uses Mark as his framework and then uh, change, you know, pull some stories in and out and add some things that maybe he got from Matthew, maybe he got from Q. But then there are these two sections from Mark, right? He uses almost all of Mark, just like Matthew does, except there are these big sections that he doesn't use anything at all. And that's uh, from Mark 6:45 through 8:26. And now we're starting to read a little horizontally. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to vertically reading in a moment. Um, but this is the big omission. This is two, almost two chapters worth of material, including walking on water, what defiles a person? Jesus declaring all food clean. The plea of the Syrophoenician women for her daughter, which is one of the strangest stories in the Gospels in my mind. Uh, healing of the deaf man, feeding of the 4,000, healing of the blind man in stages. Um, some of these, we can, we can with, with having read these, we could say, oh, well, healing of the blind man in stages? Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Maybe that's not... That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus can heal right away. Why is it taking him more time to heal this one person? And some say, well, he omitted this because there are other healing stories elsewhere. There's other feedings. There's a feeding of the 5,000. So why do we need the 4,000? Is it really, is it redundant to a degree? And there's also the little omission, which is just under a chapter, uh, as we see it in the Gospel of Mark, which are the, uh, the teachings on temptations to sin and teachings on divorce. It's time for somebody to get up, to wake up. Sounds like my alarm clock. Yeah. It's unlikely because, I mean, we could talk more about yeah, manuscript tradition and manuscript history, but um, there's, there's good evidence for, you know, it's not like a page, just a single, that these stories would have been, Part of a single page, and that page may have been removed, or it's it's more than that. It's you find at the end of this, it's it's like in the middle of a page. There should be about three chapters here, you know, and it's it's not there. So, uh, yeah, that's not that's not it's a good good possible explanation, but I don't. In this case, the manuscript tradition wouldn't support that. Matthew did have some of them. Um, he did not. Um, he wasn't fond of this particular discussion about declaring all foods clean because he was a Jew writing to Jews and they were still very concerned about uh, ritual purity. So Matthew omitted that as well. Although Mark had it, Matthew and Luke, neither of them liked that. Uh, well, but that's not, that's not said anywhere else in his gospel. So this, again comes the question of do these, and we don't know this. This is all... This is all um, conjecture at this point. Did, Mar did Matthew and Luke come along and say, we're going to replace Mark 
did they ever envision a day in which they would all, prob- all three be set alongside each other? And then somebody else would come along later and write a gospel of John? Probably not. That is the canon that we have and we've received. But these original authors probably never envisioned a day when they would be all together. Um, and we won't, since we're talking about it, it's, it's a little off topic, but uh, I think it's important to note the early church— um, by and large, it felt similarly. They didn't like Mark as much. And we can see that because they didn't have as many copies. So in the, the copy, the manuscript tradition, if you really like something, you're going to have a lot of copies of it because it's going to wear away um, and lots of people are going to want to read it. So Matthew and Luke and John are the Gospels we find the most. Mark has the fewest number of copies. Um, whenever there are multiple copies of any Gospels, Mark is low on the, low on the totem pole. So... So it could have been that they thought, yeah, Mark, we still have Mark, but we really, like Ma- we really like Matthew, we really like Luke. So let's talk about a general outline. Uh, again, coming to the discussion that Luke and Acts are really volume one and volume two. So in volume one, we have the story of how the gospel began with Jesus in Galilee and in Jerusalem. And then volume two, the uh, sequel, is how the uh, apostles carried the gospel they're out from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, and they're on. So we're not going to look at all of this. This is there in your notes for you. But to say uh, we've got beginnings, call of Jesus, some ministry, getting to Jerusalem, and then uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus there in Jerusalem. That whole uh, section is about 30 years. And then Acts, in very broad strokes, you've got the gospel from Jerusalem to Antioch and then from Antioch to Rome, and this is about 30 years. Now, Luke doesn't say what you were about to read took place within 30 years, or what you just read took 30 years. No, he doesn't say that. That's, that's a, a scholarly um, analysis after the fact, and not mine, right? I didn't, I didn't think this up. Somebody else did. Um, but then we also start looking at Luke and Acts, and this is not a class on Acts, and we're not reading horizontally because Acts is not a gospel. But it is important to look at the, uh, the similarities between them, because if you look over in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, you'll find another preface to Theophilus, it's just as you did in Luke. As you compare—now, this isn't, this, this isn't complete. There are some sections that are, uh, you know— skimmed over or omitted here, but there are great, there's great share, there's a lot of shared material. Opening sermons, prophetic fulfillment, rejection of of Jesus, then preaching, some people are healed, centurion asks for Jesus, well over in Acts, Jesus is already ascended by this point, so the centurion asks for Peter. You've got Pharisees criticizing Jesus over in Luke, well what happens in Acts? The, The Pharisees come back and they criticize Peter. Uh, mission of the 70, mission of Paul, and then more shared material throughout the rest of the gospel and of, of Acts. You've got Jesus or Paul's. Now it's shifted, the comparison between Jesus and Peter is now shifted to Jesus and Paul. Uh, as a journey to Jerusalem. There's a passion journey, divine necessity, followers don't understand. You can read the rest here. But uh, such things as Jesus slash Paul is slapped before a, pri- a priest. Luke? Acts. You've got these, these echoes, these similarities between them. And um, I don't want to say that it's... Remember last week how we talked about the typology of, of in Matthew, how he says Jesus is really a new Moses. 
You thought Moses was cool? Well, guess what? Jesus is cooler. I don't think that by any means Acts is saying a similar thing. It's not like, well, you thought Jesus was cool? Well, just wait, Peter and Paul. No, that's not, that's not the story going on here. Because, of course, Peter and Paul are still pointing to Jesus and saying, here is the Messiah. Here is our Savior. This is what we need. Uh, th- this is the one around whom we need to form our whole life. But there are similarities that these disciples are following in the footsteps of Jesus. I think that's the message to be taken away from this. And then four trials of Jesus, four trials of Paul, and some scriptural fulfillment. Now, if you come back tonight at four o'clock for the choir concert, I'll say this while the choir folks are still in the room, um, you will hear some of the Gospel of Luke because Luke has three hymns, particularly in those opening chapters, that uh, we find nowhere else in, in the New Testament, but that are sung and are common uh, in, in um, liturgy through, through the ages, including the Magnificat, which you will hear tonight with a beautiful string ensemble. Magnificat anima mea dominum et exultavit spiritus meus in Deo salutari meo. My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, right? So this is one of those famous hymns from Mary, uh, Song of Mary. And I, we say it in the Latin, and we'll sing it in the Latin this evening, because of course that was the, the major language spoken in the church for centuries and centuries. And then the Benedictus, the Song of Zechariah, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has come to set the chosen people free. There's a lot more, but there, you can see that there's, um, there's similarities, and yet there's distinctions. And then the song of Simeon, the Nunc Dimittis, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to thy word. So uh, this is, the, this is the, the priest Simeon who um, comes to the temple. He was, he was promised that he would see the, the Messiah before his death. And he's, he finally comes to the temple and sees Jesus and says, Ah. It has been fulfilled. Now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. Right? So those are all in that opening material of Luke, and they're unique. Um, right? If we recall back, Mark opens with the baptism. Matthew does open with the infancy narratives of Jesus, the, the birth stories, but they tell, he tells them in a very, very different way. Um, you find the star and the, the magi in Matthew over in Luke. You don't get that at all. Um, and we'll come back to that in a moment. One of the major concerns of uh, the Gospel of Luke, the author, is that of universalism. And I don't mean that in the sense of all people are saved, uh, as much as he cares for everyone, um, particularly people of all races and kinds of all people. And he has a genealogy, just like Matthew does, except it's different. Um, remember last week we said we saw that there were fourteen. There were three gen, three groupings of fourteen, and we said fourteen is a way to say David, David, David. We talked about that last week, right? Um, in Luke's genealogy, he's not concerned with the same thing. Instead, he is saying there there are seventy seven people in his list, and seven and seven seven is a number of completion. So that is the idea that what has been prophesied from the beginning is now completed and fulfilled in Jesus. And the genealogy doesn't go back all the way just to Abraham. No, it goes back even further 
all the way to Adam. And then Adam is listed as a, uh, a son of God, right? So really the genealogy goes back all the way to God, which is a, is a funny thing. Um, and then we, have, we find this verse in chapter 3 where it says, All flesh shall see the salvation of our God. So the distinction here between the genealogies, and with this we'll move on from genealogies, I promise. Um, Abraham is emphasized, and the, the, the Abrahamic covenant with the children of Israel is, is emphasized in Matthew. In a different way, not quite the way we expect, but still emphasized. In Luke, the, uh, it goes even before Abraham. And if we go before Abraham, when we go back to Adam, we are all sons of Adam. We may not be sons of, uh, of, of Abraham, or we may not be sons of Isaac or Jacob, or, you know, we may not be Jewish. But guess what? We can all be descended from the first man of the first woman, right? That's kind of what Luke is saying even if you weren't included in, in Matthew's gospel, guess what? I'm including you here. You are included because you are a child of Adam. And Adam was a child of God. Um, there's also an emphasis on Samaritans. So here we have the story of the good Samaritan, which is actually a, te- a phrase that does not appear in the gospel text. It's something that uh, post-biblical tradition uh, has has almost put into the canon, right? It's one of those little titles that you see in between the verses. Um, we just love that phrase. If you had said the Good Samaritan before, uh, 2,000 years ago, and Jesus would have said something similar, they would have been like, are you crazy? The Samaritans aren't good. They're the worst kind of people you can think of. So fill in the blank, right? If you're a Democrat, think Republican. If you're a Republican, think Democrat. The Good Republican? The Good Democrat? Or, you know, the Good Terrorist? Or whatever you want to think, right? The wor- whoever you can think is the worst person, then Jesus is saying, well, guess what? This person is the good person. Whoa. So there's this interest in how, how the gospel has moved beyond the borders of what we think is right. What is Israel, right? God's chosen people. Well, guess what? Luke says, nope. Going back to my sermon last week, draw the circle wider. I think Luke would like that song. There's also a concern with women, um, right in the first few chapters, you've got men- you have mention of Mary. In uh, Matthew, there's this big emphasis on Joseph. Right? Joseph has a dream. An angel comes to Joseph. We don't get that in Luke. Instead, we get Lair- we get Mary's side of the story, um, and you get these three women mentioned that are not mentioned. Well, of course, Mary is, but Elizabeth and Anna are not mentioned in the other Gospels. You also get mention of Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Susanna, and Mary and Martha. Open up your Bibles for a moment to Luke chapter 8. Does somebody want to read this for us, the first three verses of this chapter? Go ahead whenever you're ready. Don't be shy. That's right. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. (laughs) Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, 
and Joanna, the wife of Herod Stuart Chusa, Chusa, I can't pronounce, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. Wait, read they that probably last brought again? casseroles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who provided for them out of their resources? So yeah, these aren't just women in the background. These aren't just. They didn't just. They bring aren't just casserole bringers, gold right? Gold and frankincense. They brought the good stuff. <laughs> sure. So perhaps what the Magi were in, in, um, in Matthew, no, I don't think we can quite draw that comparison. But um, there's this sense that, especially, right, Joanna is the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa. Uh, don't know exactly who that is, but there is a powerful connection, and powerful connection probably means wealth. And these women were followers of Jesus, and they gave a lot of their resources to support the ministry of the Lord and the apostles throughout this time. So these aren't minor characters, and Luke gives them proper prominence and names them. We don't get these names in the other Gospels. And then, of course, we have that story of Mary and Martha later on, um, which we'll come to. There's also an emphasis on the poor. Um, if, you, if you go back a few pages in your, um, in your Bibles to look at uh, chapter 6, verses tw- verse 24 through 26. So again, Luke is concerned with the poor over and against the rich. Um, verse, uh, chapter 6, 24, where it says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So woe to those who are rich. Uh, there's also, um, Jesus talks about giving up our possessions. And then over in chapter 16, we get this unique story of rich man and Lazarus. So actually what I want you to do is I want you to actually close your Bibles for a minute or put your finger in it or put it, you know, whatever you want to do. And I want you to listen to this story. And while you do, I want you to consider this picture. This is a, an ancient picture of the rich man and Lazarus. So there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, there lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and... Where would it? would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called out and said, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And... Send Lazarus. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue. For I am in agony in these flames. But Father Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm. 
has been, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then, Father Abraham, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, well, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The gospel of the Lord. So, do we know this story well? We may have heard it once or twice. I don't know that this is in the lectionary. I don't think this is a, a one that we preach on very often. Uh, I've never heard a sermon on this, this story. Um, but what does it mean? What does it mean? So there's a lot that we can tease out from just this story. And I look at this because it's one we don't know as well. Um, but there's a lot that we can still glean from it. One thing we can take away is that we don't see here mention of Jesus in the story. Lazarus's salvation happened, right, before Jesus' death. Jesus is still alive telling this story. So there's no sense of Lazarus was saved by Jesus or through Jesus' death. That's just just something to be aware of as we try to plot where this is in the chronology here. Um, We also get nothing about Lazarus' own moral character. Was he a good Jew? Was he faithful? Did he do all the right sacrifices, give money, uh, or, you know, uh, do good deeds of service? We don't know. Uh, it's, it's not important in this story. Um, and one thing that uh, I was surprised by is uh, the rich man knows Lazarus' name. So there's not this sense of, there's this guy outside my door, I don't know who he is, I'm not going to talk to him. I know who he is. He's Lazarus. And he remembers his name in Hades saying, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. I see him right there with you. Send him to me. I know him by name. And not just that, but also Lazarus, I want him to do something for me. So even though this, this guy who was really wealthy and in a place of power in his, in his earthly life, he was up here, and Lazarus was down here. Now the, now the tables are flipped, right? Now Lazarus is up here, and, and the rich man, who we didn't even get his name, by the way, the rich man is down here. But still, the rich man pretends and says, that Lazarus up there is still beneath me. Send him. He's like my servant, practically, right? He's not, he's not even a servant. I don't even give him food at all. But he's beneath that, even. Send him to do what I want, right? So this is, of course, a parable. And there are lots of parables in Matthew and, and Luke, especially. Um, but what is a parable? Parable um, comes from the Greek. It means throw beside, parabolos throw beside or next to. It's like a juxtaposition. And it's saying in story something that is expressed in terms of something else. So with parables, we need to um, imagine that they start with once upon a time, there was a rich man. The rich man ate food, sumptuous food every day. And there was a man outside his, right? 
if you st- imagine each parable with a once upon a time before it, you're getting closer to the proper reading and the proper genre. Because this isn't supposed to be a literal story. I, there, I mean, there surely could have been a rich man and a Lazarus. But a lot of the parables are not meant to be read literally. They're, they're saying, here's a story. What, what truth can you pull from this story, this once upon a time, right? Um, and we cannot take uh, something that, that the once upon a time helps with is when we read parables in particular, we cannot take every theological referent as theologically important. So we can't say, oh, wait, I thought it was Peter at the gates waiting for me when I got to heaven. Now you're telling me it's Father Abraham? Can't do that. That's not, that's not how we read the parables. And we can't also say, wait, wait, so there's that big, what was that, that big shark thing that was eating, la- uh, e- eating the rich man? He, or he was in Hades, and there's a separation, and Abraham's bosom and all. We can't, we can't do that to a parable. It's, it's, it's just like, con- it's like confusing genre, right? We talked, about, we talked about before, if someone reads Harry Potter in a thousand years and says, oh, this is historical book, right? That's confusion of genre. The same thing with the parables. We can't take every little thing and say, that must be the way it is in the afterlife. We can't do that. Ed? We don't know a lot. Abs- uh, there is the implication, though. Only in this case. There is. You're absolutely right. So, well, the idea is not that there's, so, again, I don't, I, I don't want us to confuse the genre here to say that this is something that actually happened no, or I happens. Know, I know, but but with, within, the, yes, it is trying to t- communicate something yeah. still. The parables want to tell you something. But what is that? And I don't, th- I think it's, No, I don't, th- I don't think it's just the, the one thing. I think it's a suggestion of a continuation. He, he knew, we're going back to this picture, we think, oh, he's just a stranger outside his door. He knows his name. There's a relationship here. He's probably there a lot, and he constantly keeps forgetting him. He constantly keeps walking by him and not giving him food, not helping him out. There's this sense that there is a relationship, and um, it's not just a one-time Oh, I'm not going to give you money, right? Because if that's the case, we're all going to be in a bad place. Right, right. But, but here, um, some themes to pull out. What can, we, what can we take from this? And we could, I mean, we could spend all day just on this. There's a lot to really pull from it. But there is this reversal of fortunes, right? He who was high was now low, right? Um, there's this warning against covetousness. Right? So the rich man had all this wealth. He didn't share it. He didn't share it. Um, and then there's that, that end where the rich man says, okay, well, if it's not going to be me, if you're not going to get me a drop of water, um, how about you send Lazarus back to my brothers? They're still alive. They still have a chance. They still have some hope to be uh, spared from this. And then Abraham says, well, no. If the, prophet, the law and the prophets aren't enough... Even the return of someone resurrected from the dead 
won't convince them. Well, who's about to be resurrected from the dead? Jesus. So there's these, all these, we, we could read this story just as its own unit, but that's, that's hard to do because we don't quite get it. It's when we start to open it up and contextualize and say, okay, law and the prophets, who's Father Abraham? What is this sense of, you know, love, your stra- love the stranger in your midst? Be, uh, you know, provide for those in your community. We are one family. Father Abraham is our father. We are still family, right? Going back to our genealogy discussion of, from the book, book club a few months back, we're all in one family. You're forgetting your family. You're, eat, you're feasting every day. You're, you're, you, know, you can barely move. You're, you've got so much food in you. And this guy can barely move because he's got no food in him. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. So it's not, it's not necessarily about, again, it's not about literally, you know, a poor man's going to go to heaven and a rich man's going to go to hell. That's not what we should take from this. It's, forget the... Sure. Sure. And the idea is we need to share, we need to be in community and give to those who have less. Um, I think that's a really, um, oh, and a great phrase I found in uh, I. Howard Marshall where he says, miracles cannot melt stony hearts. So even if Lazarus comes back from the dead, these brothers, they've got stony hearts. They're not going to believe. And so the same way, those who are rich who uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Jesus says that. Okay. Um, um, then we've got these parables throughout, uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke. And these are ones are unique. These are not found in Mark or Matthew or John. These are unique to the Gospel of Luke. So you've got the two debtors, the good Samaritan, friend at night, rich fool, barren fig tree, the the. Uh, lost coin and the lost son, which we're actually reading today in church, right? Also called the prodigal son. Parable of the dishonest manager. Rich man and Lazarus, we just read. Unjust judge and persistent widow. Pharisee and tax collector and the wedding feast. These are all 13 parables that do not appear in the other gospels. These are unique to Luke. Some other important motifs of Luke there's a big emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And we're actually going to, zo- I initially thought we'd spend some time in this, but we're going to zoom through it a little bit. Uh, several points there. Um, there's sections where it says the Spirit acted or the Spirit did or the Spirit appeared. The people were filled with the Spirit. Um, so there are several verses you can look at later if you want to. Um, but also, don't forget that Luke, being the author of Acts as well, that's when we get the story of Pentecost, right? So Acts 2 is when people are filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you read Matthew, Mark, you won't get a big emphasis on the Spirit. Luke, that's when Luke really loves the Holy Spirit and talks about the Spirit a lot. There's also a big emphasis on prayer. And this features, again, more than the, synop- more than the other synoptics, and you can see some verses there. There's also this sense of um, joy. Let's rejoice. Let's praise God. This is also one of those um, motifs that carries throughout the whole gospel. And we can think, if we want to remember this, you can think, where are those songs? Where are those songs in the gospels? Oh, that's right. They're all in Luke. And songs, we sing songs when we're joyful, when we're happy, when we're praising God. And so Luke 
has those three songs that nowhere else that appear nowhere else, but there's also a sense throughout they were filled with joy. They rejoiced at the sight of, right? That that phrasing appears throughout Luke's gospel. And you can see a, a few instances of them there. There's also an emphasis on titles. And particularly uh, the title of Savior. Um, you get Messiah, you get Son of God and Son of Man in the other gospels. But particularly in Luke, Luke emphasizes that Jesus is our Savior. Our Savior. More than, more than any others. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about these two phrases. And I, uh, that is, Son of Man and Son of God. What do you understand about these two phrases? Before I say anything. Okay, that's one idea. They're the same. Duality, in that, say a little more, Fred. Okay. Okay. The word became flesh, right? Absolutely. So there's a sense of Jesus is man, Jesus is God. Okay. Anything else? Does that cover all the bases, or is there something else to be, still be added about this? Mike? Oh, okay. Great. Son of Adam. I love that. Right? C.S. Lewis. Second Adam. Yep. Okay. Great. And which is C.S. Lewis loves that all over the place in C.S. Lewis. Now, if I had to, um, if I had to take Son of God and Son of Man... Are they equal on their equal footing or is one above the other? Son of God what? Has to be bigger. Okay. So I want you to open up your Bibles to uh, Luke one thirty five. Luke one, chapter one, verse thirty five. So this is when Gabriel is there. This is the annunciation of the birth of Jesus. Gabriel is speaking to Mary. Verse 35, Gabriel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Again, Holy Spirit, we know we're in Luke. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be, to be, to be born will be holy, and he will be called Son of God. Okay, so we have a birth, and we have a title, Son of God. Now, we read this through Christian lenses, through modern-day lenses of, oh, right from the very beginning, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning he is the, the descendant of the divine being. That is how we read this. Except, Son of God, in this context, especially related and linked to a birth, um, is a very political phrase. So it is, in, the, in this time in the Greek and Roman world, there was a sense that the emperor was a son of God. And so by calling Jesus son of God, it's a, very, it's a revolutionary statement. It's a statement saying that this is a son of God. Well, if this is a son of God, that means that that other guy's not. So this is politically revolutionary. That's what, that's what this, whole, this whole opening of Luke 
is filled with political overtones, right? Um, this is not just the descendant of the divine being. We are actually saying Caesar calls himself son of God. When they're born, there's, you know, the son of God has been born, the son of God. Well, you're talking about an emperor. You're talking about a human. But you're calling that human the son of God. It's not Jesus. But here, the birth of Jesus, the angel declares, that's not the son of God. This is the Son of God. So you can read it both ways, but what we need to really be, be clear on is that there is a context. It's being read within that uh, social cultural milieu, and this phrase is used a lot in that, in that, in that time, and so it's echoing that. Uh, was that a question, Barb? I think that's a possible interpretation, but I'm, I would actually say that there is an exclusivity within the, the, the phrase because it's not one of the sons of God. It is, this is the son of God. And if I'm an emperor and I've taken that title onto myself, there's no others who can take that title. I am the son of God. And if you're saying you're the son of God, you're my rival. And you've got you've to be taken down or else you're going to take me down. So I think there is a sense of exclusivity within that, that title. Um, I also want to, to go to the other side of this coin here. Uh, son of man. Uh, can we look at chapter 9, verse 21? So remember, Gabriel talking to Mary says, this is the son of God. And then over in chapter 9, Jesus is talking Nine, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 21, 22. He sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah, saying, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. He's just, the disciple Peter just said, you're the Messiah. And then, for some reason, Jesus says, the Son of Man must undergo great suffering. He's talking about himself in the third person, Right? Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man. But he just, somebody just said he's the Messiah. They didn't, Jesus didn't say, oh, you're wrong. Jesus is affirming his Messiahship and saying, the son of man. So if we hear son of man in that context, related to the word Messiah, we should be drawn back to Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 7. And throughout Daniel, the second half of Daniel, where um, there are mentions of the son of man. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. This is a divine, heavenly being that is foretold from the ages and will be, and is, is, is being recast in the role of Messiah. So, you are the Messiah, hmm? the Son of Man. Oh, you are the Messiah? Yeah, that's right, I'm the Son of Man. You knew that phrase, because you grew up every week hearing these stories in temple, in the synagogue. What you've heard about, what you've known about, that's me. That's me. So, before a few weeks ago, I, I have to say, I have had so much fun preparing for this class because uh, I've been learning a ton. And this is one of those things that three weeks ago, I would have been right with you all saying, you know, son of man and son of God, it's dual nature. And I think that's, that's perhaps certainly a part of it. It could be understood that way. And, I, and that's a traditional understanding of it. Um, 
and, you know, connections to Adam and all these things. But when we look at the greater context of the verses, Son of God connected with birth, just like an emperor at birth, and we look at, you are the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. I am the Son of Man. When we look at the context, Son of Man is actually a higher title. It's not just saying he's a human. That's not it. He is this divine Son of Man. This phrase that we knew from Daniel, we have always said that this is the Son of Man is coming. This Son of Man has messianic undertones. Son of God, you just... Caesar is no longer the Son of God. You're the Son of God. We like you in a political way. So they can be read in multiple, uh, multiple, multiple ways here. Jerry. Yeah, great, Christ, a great. Christ made a big fuss about that. Told all the, the disciples, I'm going to send somebody to take care of you. Sure. No, yeah, yeah. So there's, and that, that is present in Luke as well. But, but there's not, there's an, if you look at the emphasis, how many times do you get the phrase spirit or Holy Spirit in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke? Luke, it's like 30 times. In Matthew and Mark, it's like five, six, seven, right? It's not as many. So there's, an, there's a great, great emphasis uh, on Holy Spirit when it comes to Luke. Okay. Whoop, other questions? Right. Right, Son of God. So this is a way that, so I, I, I don't, what I, what I wanted was to walk away with is that, um, yes, Jesus, of course, is the Son of God. And we, we take that to mean descendant of the divine being, right? There is some connection with, with God the Father. But in this context, this political context, I think this phrase is being used in two different ways. Um, and to the, the original audience, I think Son of Man is actually going to be more important, um, because everyone's saying, oh yeah, emperor, son of God, son of God, son of God. David is the son of God. Abraham is the son of God. Um, Adam is the son of God. All these people are son of, listed as sons of God. But, um, so I think uh, son of man is higher in that. But still, yes, the son of God does not just mean one thing. It means multiple things. So it's, it's how, you, how do you slice it? Um, was there was another question, Beth? this instance no no who we right right um we talked about in september how people over literalize things and 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 could read like the the communion the institution of communion this is my body um as as the, the our roman catholic brothers and sisters believe it actually is body and blood that is from a literal, more literal reading of the text. Now, the word is there is not present in, in the, the Greek, I don't believe. I think it's just a, a, this, this, my body, right? This is not a language translation issue. This is just, you know, huias anthropos and uh, huias theos, right? It's just, um, this is in the Greek. Mm-hmm. So we get some expanded endings here, and we only have a few moments. I want to I want to zoom through a few things here. Um, if you turn to chapter twenty four, just for a moment here, 
Um, you've got the resurrection. We have even a resurre- an implication of a resurrection in Mark, right? But we don't get the full story. Now, Matthew, we do get some res- post-resurrection experience, uh, uh, appearances. Um, you've got the walk to Emmaus, which is one of my favorite stories, right? Jesus, after, after resurrection, Jesus appears to these two people walking on the road, and they don't even know who he is. They know him. How do they not recognize There's so many questions. I love this passage, right? What is going on here? And then, after all that, Jesus appears to his disciples. And then after that, Jesus ascends. Now, flip the page once more, and uh, we, we're, still, we're still in... Oh, not once more. I should say go to Acts, not John. That's the weird thing in our Bibles that Luke and Acts are separated, even though they're part one and part two. So over in the first part of Acts, you get the ascension story again. It's like, okay, if you forgot where we were, this is where we were. Jesus was just resurrected, and now let's do the ascension again, right? So there's this beautiful parallel there. But um, I'm going to give you this little factoid, and then we're going to go with one other thing. Um, according to Marcus Borg, he says, um, most, more of the New Testament was written by Luke than anyone else, which I've never realized. If you talk about quantity of text, length of text, that's absolutely this author whom we are referring to as, as Luke. Luke and Acts, longer than any other single book. If you add up all the, the epistles of Paul, this is still longer. So, um, we're not going to go there. Okay. Um, what was the other thing I had here? Let's go to some takeaways. Yes. So some takeaways are Luke and Acts is the longest book, single book, and the author wrote more than any other in the New Testament. The outline for Luke is very similar to Mark with some large and not so large uh, omissions. Luke and Acts have a lot of different parallels. Luke emphasizes a particular care for women, the poor, and widows, and any outsiders, really. There is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit and prayer and joy. Jesus is our Savior. There are expanded post-Easter narratives, including the walk to Emmaus. And the next week we'll study the Gospel of John. But before we go there, I want you to open up your Bibles one last time to Luke 22. Just a few pages back if you're still there at the end of Luke. Starting in verse 54, we read this story about um, Peter denying Jesus, right? Remember, he denies Jesus and the cock crows and all. We know all that. Um, If I were to make a movie of the Gospels, I would do a movie on the Gospel of Luke. And this is one of the reasons why. Um, I'll, I'll zoom down to... Right, he denies, he denies, and then let's zoom down to verse 59. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, surely this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him, before the cock crows today, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Luke has a particular, going back to what was the purpose of Luke's gospel in writing this. 
Um, yes, it's an investigation. Yes, he's trying to set an orderly account. But I also think if he were, if the movies are, were around today, he would be in Hollywood because that does not appear in any of the other Gospels where it says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That would be, that's a, that's a movie, that's a magic movie moment, right? Then he remembers. Then he is driven to tears and, and walks and, and runs out, right? Um, so there's this sense that um, the words, that, the way that Luke tells the story, it is more evocative. It is more visual. There are things that, word pictures and, and, and things that pop up into our imagination that Mark and Matthew don't have in the same exact ways. We are already over time. I wanted to ask, I wanted to leave some time for questions, but we don't have it. So, next week, come with questions next week if you want. Um, next week, we will go into the gospel according to John. I encourage you to read through it. If you, if you don't have the time, that's understandable. I encourage you to then go onto that Bible Project website and look at the videos for John. They're fabulous, 10, 20-minute long summations of the whole gospel with infographics and pictures and all. So um, thank you very much.